The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Anthony Flacavento. He is a commercial organic farmer and the author of Healthy Food Systems, A Toolkit for Building Value Chains. He is also the author of a new book that we're going to be talking about today titled Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up. Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. I met Mr. Flacavento because we were both Food and Society Policy Fellows. He is widely read. He has contributed to the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and Solutions Journal. His area of emphasis is on sustainability and rural development. And in 1995, he founded Appalachian Sustainable Development, and he now serves as the president of Scale, Inc., a private consulting business that supports ecologically healthy economies. Welcome, Mr. Flacavento. It is a pleasure to have you with me again today. Thanks so much, Melinda. And when did you ever call me Mr. Flacavento? Okay, I'll call you Anthony, but I, I have so much respect for your work, and I'm just thrilled with your new book. You've got an intro here from Bill McKibben. Very proud to get that from Bill. I have to say he's such an amazing, amazing and important person in the world. Well, and I love what he says. You know, he describes how it's really easy to be depressed and feel the sense of doom about our planet. But what you've presented, and it's exactly how I feel about this book, is you present realistic hope, not based on theoretical opportunities, but based on what's already happening that doesn't make it into the news media. Exactly. When I started out to put this book together, I I felt like I had a pretty good sense of the amazing things that were happening around the country in in local foods and sustainable organic farming and alternative energy. And what I found as I got deeply into the research was really what I knew was just the tip of the iceberg. And what's in the book is just the tip of the iceberg. But the, the reality is that there is just a fantastic amount of amazing work that's going on all over the country from Native American reservations in Arizona and New Mexico to the Pacific Northwest, Appalachia to the Southeast, uh, rural, urban, small town. It's really a, an extraordinary body of work. And the problem is not lack of good things and substantive things. I mean, not, not just little pilot projects, little cute things, but real alternative economies emerging in places where you just almost couldn't imagine it. It's not a lack of the work, it's a lack of attention to the work. And because the media and the pundits and the public debate doesn't talk much about it, that also means that that work doesn't filter up to affect our public policy about who gets what and who writes the rules. It just it should have a huge impact because of how important it is, but thus far it's had a, a disproportionately small impact. Yeah, and we just saw each other at Ralph Nader's event called Breaking Through Power. And on day two of that event, there was a focus on media, and it's exactly as you described. 
the media gives us a very shallow perspective on what's going on in our country, and it's a pretty depressing view, lots of entertainment, lots of distractions, but we've got examples in your book. The way I'd like to describe actually your book, if I were to summarize it for others, I would say it is a roadmap for transformation with community examples, and of course it's very much food-based because that's how we see the world through that lens. Who did you write this book for? Yeah, and thanks for that description. I, I may quote you on that, Melinda. <laughs> Please do. Roadmap for transformation. I hope that it's that. I would be so thrilled and so proud if it if it becomes that. I wrote the book for really three audiences. I would say the secondary and third audience, all important, but the secondary the secondary one is activists like you and me. People around the country doing local food work, local economy, clean energy, urban renewal people who are doing the work but are also so, so busy with it, uh, managing projects, managing staff, uh, getting resources, that they don't often have enough time to stop and reflect, either on their own work or to kind of learn from other things going on around the country. And so one of the audiences is the very activists that are bringing this better world to life, but hopefully giving them a little bit of sustenance maybe some new ideas about how to go about their work, and a little bit of a challenge as to thinking about how important it is to connect the work, the work they do locally with bigger issues, the public debate and public policy. The third audience, maybe in order, I suppose, is policy uh, wonks, uh, folks who run the amazing organizations that are fighting for sustainable ag or fighting food deserts or fighting for small independent businesses versus the big corporate banks and chains. Those folks do unbelievable to keep the tide from overwhelming us, the tide of you know, corporatism and big money in Wall Street. But, but really, I have found that for the most part, they're not terribly well connected to this emerging work on the ground. They, they don't spend the time with it. They don't know much about it. So they do a great job fighting the bad stuff but they don't exactly have a good foundation in the good stuff. And so that's like two very important audiences. The most important audience that I wrote the book for was just everyday folks, people that I think have not yet given up hope, uh, people who perhaps shop at a farmer's market or who are trying to reduce their carbon footprint or are thinking locally rather than globally, they may have some vague concerns about free trade deals or GMOs or other things, but they're not really sure what to think. And these concerned citizens, what I, in the book I refer to as hopeful citizens, mm -hmm. I think it's a huge body of people, you know, tens of millions of people who really want to live their lives in a good way and make a difference, but for the most part don't know exactly how to do it or even what to believe. And I think of all three audiences, that's the one I wrote it for the most, hoping that it could both inform them in a, on you know some pretty complicated issues of economics and capital and agriculture, but also give them, like you say, a roadmap, provide them with some tools. Well, and I think we also have to address the dominant narratives that are taught to us through mainstream media. And... As I'm going through this book, I'm thinking, this would make a great movie. 
because I'm reading about these people and these places, and I want to jump through the pages and really meet these individuals. And I'm just going to pull out one gentleman from the introduction, Martin Miles from Lee County, Virginia. Mm-hmm. He was the first tobacco farmer to make the transition to raising organic produce as part of the Appalachian Harvest Enterprise. And you describe, you know, how difficult this kind of transition is, in part because the infrastructure really isn't set up to do it. The incentive, the policy incentives aren't there. And we've also been taught that it's really difficult or we somehow, you know, how can we make a decent living without doing harm to the land or to the health and well-being of others? So this addresses all of those conflicting messages that we may receive. Yeah, Martin is a, a really unique and interesting fellow. Although I'm no longer, you know, managing Appalachian Harvest, I've stayed in touch with him. And the reason I opened the book with him was, number one, because he really jumped in. He really decided, in fact, I can remember at one point, I don't think this quote is in the book from him, but I remember at one point after he had three or four years of experience growing organic fruits and vegetables, as well as, I should say, meat goats and lamb on some scale, I remember him saying um, to a TV interviewer, well, he was kind of happy that uh, now he was growing things that were good for you instead of things that hurt you. You know, just very straightforward. But he also was somebody that if you just if you just looked at him, if you just heard him talk, if you just saw the places he hung out, nine times out of ten, you'd walk on by. You'd think, well, I'm not going to try to start a local food initiative in that community. I'm not going to try to get that guy to grow organic produce or change his farming habits. But he is not all farmers. Of course, not all local people are open-minded. But he was somebody who saw the writing on the wall about tobacco's decline, but he also wanted to grow things that were good for people. He had that basic impulse. And um, I think there's many more... Martin Miles out there than we think. People who, given the right opportunity, which could be markets, could be infrastructure, could be uh, resources and training, maybe a little bit of all of the above, so that the risk of transitioning, whether it's transitioning from tobacco farming to organic produce or from coal mining to manufacturing parts for wind turbines, or whether it's from a hedge fund job to working for a community-based financial institution. There's all kinds of destructive livelihoods going on in the world. And for people to make that shift, we need to help them make it. And um, that's part of what we tried to do in those early days of Appalachian Harvest. Well, you bring up a really good point about managing risk. And I'm sure you've heard the same sentiment in your travels across the country in that farmers may say, I know what I'm doing isn't right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. But I don't know how to get out of it. Definitely. Yes, definitely. And the longer you've been at something, not only is it perhaps become your way of seeing the world, your comfort zone about what you know you're good at, that's one piece of shifting for sure, is our our own habits and sense of competence. But the other thing is you've probably got a lot invested in it in terms of equipment, in terms of perhaps uh, on-farm and off-farm infrastructure, relationships. So again, whether it's a tobacco farmer shifting or whether it's somebody from another profession, we just don't make those transitions easy. In fact, we make them difficult. And then on top of it, it's not only the shift that the individual farmer or business person or banker or entrepreneur needs to make. It's the fact that 
even though things are a little better, even though USDA's policies towards local food and organic are certainly better than they were today than they were 20 years ago, and other agencies have gotten better, the reality is it's still dramatically lopsided in favor of the non-local, of the big corporate, of the extractive, of Wall Street over Main Street, Monsanto over the small family farmer. In spite of the progress we've made, which is real, the public policy and the way we put our tax resources out there are just fantastically in favor of the big guys over the little guys. And so when, when a person tries to make that switch, it's not just a personal change they're making or a farm infrastructure. They're fighting a system that's rigged against them. Mm-hmm. And that's why the hopeful statement that percolates up from the book in terms of how do we get over that or how do we change that, how do we confront that Goliath, is through community and networks. And you describe the power of those kinds of networks. And in the interviews that I've done lately, that seems to be a common denominator that in making the shift and winning this so that we have truly supportive, healthful, sustainable communities, building those networks is so important. Absolutely. You know, the book is structured after the first chapter, which talks about what's wrong. I think it's titled What's Wrong with What We Got. Mm-hmm. Um, the next six chapters, which is the bulk of the book, uh, are each dedicated to a transition that I say we need to make, each each one of them connected to the other and all of them hopefully adding up to a, a major transition towards a, a healthy and sustainable and democratic kind of economy. But one of those transitions, I think maybe the one you're referring to, is around scaling up through networks. Right. And these networks can be three dozen farmers in a five-county area of, of Appalachia or northeastern Kansas. They can be region-wide networks through, um, you know, connected by bioregion or, or market affiliation, maybe statewide and national. And I, I feature networks at all levels in that book. And as I was writing about networks, it occurred to me that in many respects, they're the grassroots mirror image of what the biggest international corporations do. What they do is they integrate vertically, which is to say they try to control every part of the supply chain from the raw material up through to the retail transaction. But they also integrate horizontally. They buy lots of other businesses way afield from their core business. And they do that both for influence and profit, but they also do that because they see opportunities in that horizontal scaling. So it occurs to me that we're beginning to do that same thing through these dynamic networks. We're we're using networks to begin to achieve some vertical integration where farmers or loggers or others who historically have just been price takers of raw materials are now beginning to be connected to the end buyer, and so they get more of a piece of the price. And we're getting these horizontal linkages by connecting farmers to food processors, to distributors, to gleaners and food bank people, to folks making compost from the waste material, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of vertical and horizontal networks, I think, I I don't want to say that they're going to match the power of the corporations, but I think they are part of the antidote. 
Mm-hmm. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Mr. Anthony Flacavento. He is a commercial organic farmer. He is a widely read author. We are talking about his latest publication titled Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. I want to talk a little bit more about how do we get out of this mess certainly networks, building communities, but also cooperation. And you highlight in the book, there were two pieces that I wanted to pull out. One was Athens, Ohio, because you spent some time talking about ACENET. And I thought it was a great example that deserves more discussion. And I also want to talk about Organic Valley, because their cooperative model is tremendous, and they just turned over a billion dollars in sales through this terrific cooperative, thoughtful strategy. Absolutely. And maybe we'll start with Organic Valley and then talk about ASNET. Yeah, both Great. of them are in, of course, ASNET actually appears in several places in the book, ASNET and Southeast Ohio, Athens area, because the work they've done, mostly food system work. Some of the other communities I write about are, are not so much focused on food system, other things. But Southeast Ohio, the Athens area, ASNET and rural action, uh, in many respects, kind of were the, the model, the, the exemplar in the early days, and continue to be. But, but putting them aside for just a moment, the Organic Valley uh, model is quite amazing because here you have something that started very small, like lots of uh, producer cooperatives do, and gradually grew, well, actually grew rather rapidly, but grew in a number of respects. The number of farmers involved went from you know a few dozen to hundreds, now to you know in the thousands, the product line now encompasses not just the milk and the dairy products that they're best known for, uh, but meats, eggs, produce. But the most incredible thing about the way they've gone about it, as they've gone from a, a small regional cooperative returning the bulk of the value and getting a better price for their producers to a national cooperative, a national network, that's a tough transition to make. Very often, when really good groups that start out, you know, all four, the local community and the local farmer, get really big, they lose a lot of the spirit and maybe even the integrity of what they were doing. Part of how Organic Valley has avoided that, first of all, it's because they're a co-op, and the co-op elects the board and the board manages the organization. So that that's very critical. But the other thing is, when they started moving milk across the country, what they decided they needed to do was work regionally. So they're a national organization, but they have these regional dairy pools. So if you're buying Organic Valley milk in the Boston area or Connecticut, you're most likely getting it from small organic family farmers in the Northeast. If you're buying it in California or Wisconsin, you're getting it from a different pool of farmers. So they've taken the same set of standards about organic, about quality, about all that. They've regionalized the production. And then on top of that, they've worked with regional processors, cheese makers, dairy associations, to even keep a lot of the value-adding infrastructure within the region. So, you know, the normal tendency, even in, even in the nonprofit world, is when you get big, you do the same thing the corporations do. You, you centralize power. The flow of uh, profit and prosperity gets more and more concentrated at the top, and they've avoided that by maintaining this kind of 
local regional base for everything they do, even though, as you say, there are over a billion dollars in annual sales net. It's an amazing example. It is. And we, in my opinion, maybe you've seen differently, but I don't believe we teach cooperative business models nearly enough. In fact, I don't think it's typical coursework in business schools. You know, if we learn about the cooperative models, it's usually taught through, say, rural sociology departments. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just say that there are a lot of books that go into way greater depth on cooperatives, what they are, how they're run, examples. Mine just scratches the surface. But the truth of what you just said came out in uh, as I was as I was researching again and one of the things that is recommended by people leading the uh, the effort to try to expand co-ops particularly producer co-ops is exactly what you said that we need to begin teaching it at, at the high school level in college business programs not only that but the infrastructure of uh, cooperative extension, of small business development, of economic development that's all over the country. In the vast majority of cases, those folks are not equipped to counsel somebody who might want to start a co-op or an existing entrepreneur who's wanting to retire and is thinking he or she would like to transition their business to the employees. There's very, very little of that expertise in the very institutions that are out there to counsel and assist and provide the TA. So there's a section in the book where a set of recommendations, they aren't mine, they're from experts on cooperative, are laid out about exactly how we need to penetrate the education and the support systems that are right now devoted to basically single-person entrepreneurs of a kind of rugged individualist business model to begin uh, moving towards co-ops. Because the reality of co-ops is they're not just generally better for workers. They don't just increase the savings rate of the workers who are employed by them. They don't just respond better to the needs of the workers. All of that is documented. But they're actually, overall, more productive. You take cooperative businesses within an economic sector and you compare them to traditional business forms, and they tend to outproduce them on top of everything else. So it's really a model that we've, you know, compared to this, what they've done in Spain and Mondragon, what the Italians have done, what the Danes have done. We've got a long way to go on co-ops, but it's a very, very hopeful piece of the, of the transformation. I agree. Hopeful indeed. Let's go to Athens, Ohio, because I was impressed with AceNet in part because of local sourcing. What I see happening often is that maybe you'll have a local baker and everybody loves to buy the local bread, but perhaps the sourcing of the flour, if it could be local, that would be great. But maybe it's coming from far away, and maybe we're just looking for the cheapest source. And I like the idea of places that take into account, how can I source most of my basic materials that I need from a more regional area, rather than looking for the cheapest, realizing that sometimes keeping things local or regional actually will pay off more in the end. Yeah, and AceNet, I don't know when they came to this realization, but I think, you know, they've been going for about 30 years, started by June Holly, a real visionary person who, in many respects, wrote the book on community-based networks. But somewhere along the line, they realized that a regional approach was probably essential, although 
they started the 30-mile meal that's kind of uh, caught hold in a lot of places, and they, they push uh, the, the hyper-local quite a bit. They also recognize that both from the standpoint of the resources that were needed to really scale up uh, farming and food businesses and the markets that were needed, that they would probably need to work regionally. So they've put together just an extraordinary network of, of entrepreneurs. They've nurtured and helped to launch uh, upwards of 300 businesses through their Food Ventures uh, kitchen incubator, uh, the vast majority of which are not only still going but uh, growing. They've created uh, a regional branding system uh, for some of those entrepreneurs that, that graduate, but for others as well, both those who went through their program and those that did not. That's called Food We Love, and that brand is essentially an umbrella brand for scores of locally grown and locally made products. They've worked with Ohio University not only to buy local, but to develop the expertise to train, to help you know, be a co-trainer in uh, businesses. They've supported and nurtured the Athens Farmers Market, which um, is one of the best farmers markets probably east of the Mississippi. Hmm. You know, so it's really it's a multi-multi-pronged uh, approach. And you know, one of the points of my book is that we, we don't spend enough time figuring out how to translate this body of work into better policy. And so there's a whole chapter about that, and there's a big push for it. But one thing that, that ACENET has done, and uh, there's a few other groups featured in the book that have done this as well, like Push Buffalo, is that they really have been very deliberate about harnessing the real-world experience of how they've created and nurtured hundreds of farms and, and food-based businesses into um, significant influence with their uh, county commissioners, with town town council members in Athens and other towns with state economic development, cooperative extension with university. I'm not sure of the impact yet on the federal level, except I know uh, along with Appalachian Sustainable Development, ACENET has had a strong impact on the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is a federal agency. So they really set out to not only have impact, but to change the rules of the game, to mm -hmm. change public policy. And although it isn't where it needs to be, because they have such a persuasive body of dynamic entrepreneurs on the ground, it's pretty hard for the elected officials and the bureaucrats not to take notice and begin to alter their thinking a bit. And that's a big chunk of what they've done. Mm -hmm. We need to wrap up. Do you want to send us off with a message? Yeah, I think the message is that the book is fundamentally, as you say, about hope. It's a challenge to say to people, because I encounter a fair number of folks, who just feel like, well, I'm just going to focus on my own local community. I'm just going to focus on my little organic farm. And the hope is that there's thousands of other people doing this work of building a better food system and a better economy. But the challenge is that we need to think beyond the local and really begin to link up with one another and then tackle these issues of uh, the public debate and public policy. And that hopefully the book provides, as you say, a roadmap to help us do that. I absolutely think that it does, Anthony, and I'm, I'm really grateful for this and knowing about this book and being able to share. There are many other topics that we could have spoken about, but telling these stories, I believe, is so important because it shows people that there is a different way, it's viable, it's working, and we can all become a part of it. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Anthony Flacavento, author of Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. This is an antidote for if you're feeling depressed about our food system. Thank you so much, Anthony, for writing the book and being my guest. Thank you.